Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Telly for History 302, History of Pop Culture. And today I'm going to give you a second to go to uh, Moodle to get the PowerPoint for early cinema because, as the title screen shows you, we're going to the movies, y'all! We're talking about movies. Uh, 1880s-ish to 1920-ish. Um, I swear, as, as the semester goes on, I'm going to get more into decades. Right now it's still a little ethereal. Uh, today we're talking about early cinema. Now, movies as we know them, you know, the idea of a projector screen projecting images onto uh, something else, kind of an old thing. It's it's not something that's uh, invented in America, per se. Uh, at least projectors aren't. However, the movies are. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Uh, some of your earliest projectors are things like Magic Lantern shows. Uh, if you go over one slide, you will see uh, that's an ad for somebody to buy a Magic Lantern. It's a very... Uh, primitive uh, projector system. Basically, they have these as early as like the gosh, 18th century in Europe. Mainly more of a 19th century thing. Fairly early on, though. They have what they're called magic lanterns. Uh, you have a light behind a screen, and basically because the light does, it projects onto a wall. And that was the magic lantern. It's a fairly common thing in Europe. Also, it's it's kind of like a... Um, I wouldn't say a Viewmaster, if y'all even know what that is. That, that was a toy I had when I was a kid. But it's basically the idea. You can project something on the wall. You have, like, a little screen. You have a little film. You project something on the wall. Uh, these were quite popular in Europe. It was kind of a parlor game, parlor thing. Uh, they had some uh, auditoriums. Uh, sometimes images weren't that big or that bright for a large auditorium. Uh, generally, it was done in smaller rooms because you could see the image a little bit more clearly. Uh, it's a little bit more effective that way. In a large auditorium, they couldn't make the images all that large. So, um, I think this advertisement is a little bit uh, ambitious at what kind of images you'd be able to get with the Magic Lantern. That said, though, they were fairly popular in Europe. Like I said, they got their start in Europe. Uh, came over to the United States. Um, they have some as early as, like, the late 18th century, so, like the 1790s. They have some in Europe. Uh, kind of comes into play in the United States. It's, it's up there with, like, you know, Shakespeare, minstrel shows and stuff, as things are kind of going around after the Civil War. Uh, sorry, before the Civil War. And a little bit afterward, um, they're very common, uh, kind of similar to the, like the slides I show you whenever I'm in class. Like kind of something similar to that, except very hard to read, uh, very hard to really get a good image of. They're not very clear. Now, something that they discovered fairly early on, uh, a lot of these uh, magic lantern projector people, is that you know if you get an image that's not that clear, kind of hard to you know very badly defined. I mean, yeah, early on they tried to do things like, you know, images of um, fancy places around the world, like, you know, world tours, like, oh, here's the pyramids or whatever. Uh, they were not very clear. Also, before photography, they were, you know, just drawings. Uh, they find, if you go over one slide, something that does work really well, really well, if you're talking about just, like, images that are hard to look at and hard to really make, a, make sense of what they are, uh, scary stuff. Uh, believe it or not, the, the scary movie even predates film. You have stuff like Phantasmagoria. Uh, Phantasmagoria is a series of matter and lantern shows. I believe the French are the first ones to really get into that. Um, basically, they, they put like you know, little drawings of skeletons and demons and little devils and things like that. And it, it's very much a horror thing. Like They could get it so like they have it projected onto smoke instead of a screen, so you can like... You know, it looks like this weird ethereal skeleton, which is uh, doing its little thing, go, going off, you know, scaring the bejesus out of people. Um, 
you're going to read uh, in the reading this week about like how one of the projected guys is like, yeah, it was really fun watching people be scared for their lives uh, with the Magic Lanterns and the Phantasmagoria, just like terrified, you know, covering their eyes from what they think are real. And I know that's something we take for granted now, but that's something you need to think about in this time period, is the fact that before this time, if you saw something that was real, like, they, they have no real basis of, oh, this is an image, oh, this is fake, this isn't real, like... If you were to take one of them and, like, bring them to a modern television, like, right now I have the weather on with the uh, hurricane going on my flat screen, like, they'd be like, where's the little people? It, it, it would blow their minds. Likewise, to see, you know, skeletons and ghosts and goblins and things that appear real, you know, that, that you can really see them. People thought they were real. People, people were ultimately crazy terrified. Now, these had a little bit of an issue because, uh, you know, the Magic Lanterns and the Phantasmatorias... Uh, they didn't really have movement. Um, they got to the point with Phantasmagoria and Magic Lantern shows later on that they would like kind of twirl it, so like go between pictures or like have very rudimentary animation where it's like it does one thing, then another, then another. Uh, you don't really have movement. Likewise, because of the lack of you know, electricity or uh, good photography, good photography is the key word I'm looking for here, uh, doesn't really come into play. Now that changes with Thomas, Thomas Edison. Uh, Thomas Edison does not invent photography by any sense of the imagination. Other people invent photography. Uh, what he does is kind of an optical illusion. Uh, it's really a trick of our mind. Uh, basically, he discovers if you take a lot of pictures and you kind of like do them fast, like a flipbook, your mind is automatically going to make it look like movement. Literally, film in this time period is just a series of pictures. That, that's honestly all a camera is nowadays. It's just whatever it's filming, it's taking several shots per second, like 24 frames a second or whatever. It's taking all these shots and then doing them quickly, and our mind makes it look like movement. Theoretically, it's just film. It's just pictures that are still, but if you move them in a, in a if you move them quickly, your mind is automatically going to like piece it together to make it look like something real. Now, Edison gets this. He has a couple of inventions. What I want you to know about is the kinetoscope. Uh, the kinetoscope is a very early one. It's a very early one that they could have it. It's a viewing method. Uh, he has a camera that can take these pictures, but the way you view them is basically on one's own. Uh, with a kinetoscope, it's only small enough for one person. Uh, you know, They're not able to get the projection very large. Uh, they're not able to, it's not even a projection at all. It's, you're literally just looking at the pictures with these kinetoscopes. Uh, the way that they really advertise these, the way they really market, marketed them, is some things like Nickelodeons, but also if you go on one side, you'll see one of these Nickelodeons, and they call these peep shows. Now, when we say peep show, you're probably thinking something titillating and sexual and stuff. In this time period, they call them a peep show because literally it was just one person could look into this little machine and watch a little film. Now, most of these early films are incredibly short, like 10 seconds. Like, one of the earliest big blockbusters, if you can call this, we're talking 1880s, 1890s, is called The Sneeze. It's literally a man sneezing. It's just like, ah, true, and people are like, oh my god, you can see somebody sneezing, that's amazing. Uh, the way these little Nickelodeons worked is you'd pay a cent, uh, which adjusted for inflation is, you know, maybe like a quarter or 50 cents or something. Not too, too much, not that expensive. And you get to watch the little film. You get to watch it, and they have these little, you know, attendants to let you know who the films are, where they're coming in. Now, in case you are wondering, yes, Edison doesn't do this, but later on, as 
film gets more exposed to other places, and particularly in Europe, they do start doing, like, titillating peep shows, if you will. Um, uh, how do I say this politely? Um, <laughs> anytime there's a new technology, they're going to figure out a way to put naked people on that. I'll, I'll just say that. I'll just say that. So, but a lot, but that's more of a European thing this time period. Edison's, like, known for being, like, super clean with his work. Uh, in time, this will develop even more into what's called the vitascope. If you go over there, you'll go aside, you'll see the vitascope. Uh, kind of like a peep show, in a sense. Uh, what's different about this is that it's kind of like a magic lantern in that it's projected, but it's also mechanical. It's got a brighter light. It's still showing very short films. Um, the vitascope films are a little bit longer, maybe a minute or two. Things like Man Washing a Horse is a fairly popular one. Like I said, they're very slice of life, uh, very much, very shortly, but not too imaginative. I mean, you do have some Fangasmatoria stuff later on, which we'll talk about in a second, but most of these early ones were more proof, proof of concept. Once again, like any technology, like what it, with any new technology, the main interest is can it be done? And so Edison, he owns a patent for most of this stuff. He's doing most of the filming. Uh, some stories, not not too, too much. Uh, some of these have plot, not too much, but, you know, they, they're so short that most of the time it is something like man washing a horse. Nothing, nothing too ambitious. Now, although America invented the technology, it's mainly the Europeans, and particularly the French, who kind of make it into an arc. Uh, right there are the Luminese brothers. Uh, the Luminator brothers, they're known for being some of the most imaginative, best... Uh, filmmakers in France, uh, they get much more artistic. They are the first ones that really give films plots, like stories, and, and fantasiful stories. You know, kind of over the top. They start having more set designs, more uh, more like a stage show, more elaborate, much more artistic. I keep using the word artistic, but just like fantasiful. Like, they kind of lean into the fact that like this is kind of a dream world. You know, this kind of it's an image, but it's black and white, but it looks like movement. You know, they really make some elaborate costumes and things like that for some of their earlier works. Another French guy I want you to know about is George Millies, right there. Uh, in fact, the little the little silent film you're going to watch, uh, Earth to the Moon, sorry, Journey to the Moon, is one of his. It's one of it's pretty much our first science fiction film. It's French. It's weird. Uh, basically, there are a bunch of scholars who decide we're going to take a rocket to the moon. They go to the moon. The rocket hits the moon in the face. That seems going to give you nightmares. Uh, when they get on the moon, they kind of explore around. They see some magic stuff. Uh, then, like, Satan shows up for some reason, because the moon is the home of the devil, I guess, or some sort of moon devil. They get chased around by demons, who are just French acrobats. And then finally, they get in their rocket ship and fall from the moon to Earth. Then they have a hero's journey. I think one of the little moon demons comes back with them. Uh, you're not going to need to know French for this movie. There are no subtitles. There are no, you know, title cards or anything like that. It's pretty much a fantasy of going to the moon. And this starts getting pretty popular in the United States. It starts in France, uh, these more artistic films, but they become more popular in the United States. You're going to be reading about some of these American theaters. Uh, when the theaters start coming, you know, once the vitascope and uh, later projectors get much better, they start building these grand theaters, like these grand cinemas. These large, you know, kind of palaces to art. You can watch a bunch of movies. They are super popular with the population. Uh, very popular with things like immigrants. And, and uh, because they could not speak English, 
you don't need to know English to watch these films. Uh, you're going to be watching some films that are silent films this week. And you're not going to... I mean, you know, some of them have title cards, but most of the time you just watch and you kind of get a pretty good idea of what's going on. Um, like I said, pretty ambitious, very popular with um, immigrants, also very popular with working-class people. Um, at this time period, the movies are very cheap. Uh, you could theoretically go for an afternoon at one price. You're not getting charged by the movie, only you know, because the movies are so short. You just stay. They kind of start repeating movies after a while, and after the movie repeats, you can go on about your business. But they are super popular, and as they grow in popularity, this really becomes one of America's main exports. You know, we're the ones who invented the technology. And although France theoretically invented the art part of it, and I would... If you, can, if you were to compare American movies with French movies about this time period, the French movies are much more fanciful. Also, later on with the German movies. Um, I might give y'all to watch The Cabinet of Dr. Calieri. That's a much longer one. It's a later one. Uh, if, you, if you got some free time, it's about an hour long. I'd recommend The, the Cabinet of Dr. Calieri. It's a fun one. Um, kind of a monster movie, a little bit, because there's a monster in it. Uh, basically, it's... It's got this weird impressionist art style, like the, the, the background sets are just weird and they're weirdly angled. Uh, it's a story about how this, this, you know, this evil professor has this sombiculus, I believe they call it, sombiculus, which is like a, a sleeping person who will like do crimes for him, but it turns out, well, there, there's a twist ending. I'm not going to, I'm not even going to spoil the twist. There's a twist ending in case you ever get it. Uh, these movies start getting more popular, much more popular, working class people are getting into it. Uh, it's very much playing the fantasy as it goes on. You know, Edison's earliest movies are very realistic because they don't really have a, you know, really don't have much of a choice. Uh, but as the French and you know the Germans and later on the Americans would get much more fanciful, they start making up new things. One movie you're definitely going to be watching is go over one slide: The Great Train Robbery. This is one of Thomas Edison's films, and you're going to be watching a movie that is like 117 years old. It's a very old movie. And it's one of our first Western movies. Uh, last week, or whenever, we talked extensively about the Western in Buffalo Bill, how it got very popular. Uh, it should come as no surprise that Western movies are one of the first movies that really, really break off in the United States. Um, this one is interesting because it has a shock ending. Um, at the very end, uh, the, you know, the bad guy shoots the screen. He goes bang, bang, bang at the screen. Apparently when this happened, this freaked out some of the audience. They thought it was really somebody with a gun. Uh, this also happened in France, uh, not for this movie, but another movie, a much shorter movie. That was called Train Coming Into the Station. It's literally a 10-second film of a train coming into a station. Um, whenever people in France saw it, they freaked out because they thought, oh my god, a train is entering the station. Like They thought it was a real train. They, they ran out of there screaming. Uh, it's the idea that people want to go to movies to like be scared. Uh, you know, they, they want to go to a movie, there's a sense of safety, but also of fantasy, if that makes sense. There's, you know, the element of the fantasiful, the, you know, this, you're seeing things that you're never going to see before, you can never see again, things that aren't real. You know, these giant, you know, moon planets that are going to the moon, you know, sleeping sombuculus, uh, cowboys, you know, fighting over, over a great train robbery, that sort of thing. But there's also an element of safety. You know, that's something to be said for a horror movie that you wouldn't get in, like, a horror stage show, which did exist, but they're different. Uh, seeing something in person is different. You know, there, there is that kind of willing suspension of disbelief, this kind of like, okay, uh, you know, I know this isn't real, but sometimes you go to a movie because you want to be scared. 
you know, I I can't think of any movies that came out lately that are really scary, but like I remember whenever I was well, this movie came out before I was a kid, so I'm not gonna say when I was a kid, but like The Exorcist. Like I never saw that movie because for everybody I heard, they're like it scared the crap out of them. It was a very scary movie. And now it's really becoming like, hey, maybe we're living too safe of a life. We want to get our vicarious thrills. Similar to the Wild West show showing, you know, this is what life is theoretically life on the West, even though it's a fantasy. Now they're showing fantasies in movies that you know are fantasy. Like, we know there's no moon people. Well, they didn't know for sure back then that there was no moon people, but it's a pretty safe bet that the devil doesn't live on the moon. Even in 1903, they, they knew that. Um... But, you know, this kind of suspension of disbelief, kind of embracing the fantasy, I want to be entertained by something that I know is fake. You know, unlike Barnum or, or um, you know, Buffalo Bill Cody, where they have the facade of, like, is it real or is it fake? These movies are, were clearly fake. These are clearly actors. These are clearly, you know, all these sets and costumes. Nobody's really going to the moon. Nobody's really shooting at a screen. That sort of thing. And this really kind of grows into more because... As people start noticing it's fake, they become really taken with some of the actors and actresses. This is the first time you have movie stars. Um, there have been popular actors before, like the Booth family doing all the Shakespeare. Uh, I'm not going to say there have never been celebrities before in the United States. There have been. But the movie star is a different type of celebrity. You know, these other performers, you'd see them in person. You know, oh, I'm going to go see Julius Booth perform as Julius Caesar. Oh, you know, I'm going to go see P.T. Barnum and, and see his show. You know, I'm going to go watch Buffalo Bill do his Wild West stuff. You can see the person in person. But with the movie stars, you never actually see them in person. Like, uh, somebody in the movie, you will more than likely never actually see them in person. These other shows, you can. And so that has an even greater sense of disconnect between the art and their patrons. The artist and their patron... You know, now if you watch, a, you know, beforehand, if you watch the live show, it's like, okay, you know, I'm probably not going to get a chance to meet Buffalo Bill, but, you know, I know he's really there, he's really doing these things. Now you're having the movie star. And some of these movie stars become very, very popular. You know, just their actual personality, trying to find out what's real about them. You know, magazines and little pamphlets about what they're actually like. Probably the biggest of these early movie stars is Mary Pickford, uh, seen here with a dog. Uh, the dog didn't make it, sadly. The dog is dead because this picture was taken like 100 years ago. Uh, Mary Pickford was known for being the damsel in distress in like every movie. Uh, seriously, in pretty much every movie she was ever in, Mary Pickford played the damsel in distress. The little, you know, teenage waif who, oh, she's wayward. You know, she's the one who's getting tied down to the railroad track by the, you know, mustache twirling villain. Uh, very uh, virginal, it was her appeal. Very, like, you know, young girl was her whole shtick. Uh, she played, like, she was 16 well into her 30s. Like, for the longest time, she was the one, you know, kind of... She was... I wouldn't say she was a sex symbol, per se, because nothing about her was, like, done to be sexy, in a sense. Like, it was done to be, like, very pure, very little girl, very girl next door, uh, somebody to protect. Uh, later on, when you get into stuff like Clara Bow, that's where you have, like, the, the sex symbol, sex symbol, like flaunting a woman's sexuality, flaunting uh, titillating, titillatingness, for lack of a better term. Uh, pornography does exist. This is completely thing. I'm not going to get into that. But just just know they do have those type of movies. But like mainstream movie stars, Mary Pickford is the big one. 
And there are all sorts of magazines, all sorts of like, uh, there is an industry, uh, because in this time period, the movies moved to California. Most filmmaking studios moved to California. Uh, before this time, most movies were made in New Jersey because that's where Edison had his uh, factory and his studio. Uh, they moved to California primarily out of necessity. Um, the weather in California is fairly consistent. It's usually pretty warm. The winters are very mild. Uh, there is some rain, but it doesn't get too, too wet. And that's from the interest of going to California, because in New Jersey, it got too cold. Uh, it was snow on the ground too much. Also in California, you have a lot of different land types. Where you can have a beach right there. The mountains are not too far. You have the hills. And so even early on, you know, we're talking super early, like 19-teens, 1920s. Um, Hollywood is already being seen as a destination of the movies. And unlike New Jersey, which is New Jersey and kind of close to most of the population, uh, Hollywood kind of gets a little bit of a mystique to it, a little bit of a sexiness. Like, this is where the movie star lives. This is a fantasy land where all the fantasyful things happen. And it really starts spreading in this time period. The idea that Hollywood is a place where you can go and it's, uh, you know, a magical place. It's on the West Coast. That's far away from most of the country. Remember, even in the 19-teens, 1920s, um, you know, it's getting easier to go across country, but it's still a fairly long trip. So it's almost like, you know, these films are coming from Shangri-La. They're coming from this fanciful place where you see the beautiful people and you can read magazines finding out what Mary Pickford is actually like. Now, the male equivalent to Mary Pickford is Douglas Fairbanks. Like over one side, you'll see a picture of Douglas Fairbanks. Uh, unlike, you know... Mary Pickford, who really played as, like, being super young and, like, all virginal and, like, you know, oh, the, the damsel in distress. Uh, he is more of a leading man type, uh, known to be, like, very sexy. Uh, he works really well with other people. He uh, becomes a pretty big thing. He's, like, one of our first Zoros, for instance. Uh, he's in movies like Robin Hood, kind of a swashbuckling hero. Uh, he becomes kind of the it guy, known for being very handsome. And they actually have one of the first Hollywood scandals, quote-unquote. Now, nowadays, this barely counts as a scandal. Uh, he is married. He is married. However, he divorces his wife, go over one slide, to marry Mary Pickford. This is a huge scandal of the time period. That, oh my gosh, Douglas Fairbanks divorced his wife to marry our little Mary Pickford. It turns out that, you know, she's not just a little girl after all. Maybe she has, you know feelings and desires and th this is the first Hollywood it couple they are the big time Hollywood it couple uh, they are big honking deal um, this is also where you start kind of get stories of Hollywood being in a very immoral place and what sort of messages are movies giving um, the idea that movies are tied with delinquency the idea that you know people who watch movies might be encouraged to do things that aren't that great aren't that good uh, very naughty things. Not, not not naughty in the sexual sense, but just like, you know, crime, deviance. But also, like, hey, if they're watching movies that are celebrating, you know, strumpets who, uh, well, marry somebody, you know, basically cause a man to divorce his wife, maybe Mary Pickford isn't so sweet and virginal. Like I said, they are the it couple. They're the biggest couple. And then a couple years later, they have a bit of a coup wherever they and some of the other biggest stars in the movie business start a new studio called United Artist. Uh, United Artist is a collaboration between some of the biggest names in the movie business. Names that if I told you them, you're going to know them. Uh, you got Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, who you just got introduced to. 
Also, they were the first to have a couple name. Uh, they were called Pickfair. So that's kind of fun. They even named their house Pickfair. So you got the It Couple. You got Charlie Chaplin, who you certainly know of Charlie Chaplin, a silent movie star. And finally, you have D.W. Griffith, who's a very important film director we're going to talk about. And in 1919, they come together to make United Artists. Uh, kind of, it's seen as a super group, the super studio, theoretically done to protect the artists from the uh, various studios who aren't very nice of them. Now, like I said, Charlie Chaplin is another pretty big movie star, kind of gets a start in vaudeville, known for physical comedy. Um, he makes more artistic ones. The one I want you to know about, my personal favorite, if you go over one slide, you will see Buster Keaton. Uh, Buster Keaton is also a um, silent movie guy. Uh, unlike Chaplin, his stuff is like much funnier, and he's way better with like physical comedy. Uh, you're gonna watch a little bit of. I'm gonna have one of his films there uh, for Doug uh, for uh, Buster Keaton. Uh, he's known as the face. He kept this straight face the entire time. Like, you know, he's a silent film guy. He's doing all these ridiculous stunts, just like incredible stunts, incredible physical comedy, like stuff that you, if you watch it nowadays, you're like, you know, there's no stuntman. He's just doing this stuff by himself, never cracking a face, never showing emotion. Uh, really, really, really impressive stuff that Buster Keaton does. Another one I want to talk about, this is a little bit later, this gets into the 20s, this is more thematic or whatever, uh, probably the closest thing we get to a male huge sex symbol, kind of the, one of the first tragic Hollywood stories, go over one slide, is Rudolph Valentino. Uh, Rudolph Valentino, he is like a, known as a very sultry actor, he's an Italian immigrant, but he's, uh, he, he's known for like kind of playing the, the sultry, you know, tall, dark, and handsome individual. Uh, probably his biggest role is uh, as the uh, as the sheik, which is like you know, supposedly this Arabic one. Um, basically, he dies very young, like super young, uh, weird stomach condition, and basically his death and like you know it's this very tragic death. Very, I don't want to use sexy death because no death is sexy, but just like because he's so young and he's so good looking, you know all all the ladies go crazy because he was such a sex symbol. Kind of like a James Dean later on, or we could probably think of other Hollywood people. Heath Ledger, perhaps, like somebody who dies young and enhanced type of thing. Uh, you know, his fans were like so devoted. They were like, you have hysteria, and people were like, oh, you know, I, I can't believe this. I'm going to die with Rudolph not here. That, that sort of shtick. Uh, you know, even long after his death, like, you know, fans would come and leave roses on his grave. Another one of these early ones. And that's something, you know, we can maybe talk about later. Uh, Rudolph Valentino's in the 20s. Um, the female equivalent, I don't have a picture of her, is Clara Bow. Uh, Clara Bow is probably the first, like, sex sex symbol of female actresses. Uh, she is known as the It Girl. In fact, the term It Girl literally refers to Clara Bow. Um, the cartoon of Betty Boop was based off of her. Uh, Clara Bow is known for, like, in her movies for being very... Um, forward with her sexuality it's not like pornography or anything but just like it's like oh she's a woman who likes men and she likes kissing and doing other things and a lot of rumors come up about her actually later on pretty much caused her to have a legitimate nervous breakdown um rumors and stories about her promiscuity start coming out and it's this whole thing that hollywood may not be a very good place when it comes to morals uh same thing with the fatty arbuckle scandal i don't have a picture of that either man maybe i should add some pictures you can google them uh, Fatty Arbuckle is another very early famous movie type. Uh, he, he's a comic actor. He's a kind of a tubby comic actor. Uh, he is accused of 
killing a woman, uh, maybe even raping her or sexually assaulting her. All sorts of stuff go on with that. Uh, very big scandal. The Fatty Arbuckle scandal is a very big scandal. And it kind of comes together to say that maybe movies aren't good for the population. Maybe they don't have morals. Maybe they don't have anything that really elevates them to high art. Maybe there's problems. Now, in the midst of this, there are those who say maybe cinema can be used for something great. Maybe it can be used to edify the population. Maybe it can just transcend art and just become something very important for the United States of America. I mentioned earlier the four founders of United Artists were Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, Charlie Chaplin, and D.W. Griffith, who you didn't know too much about, but I'll tell you about right now. Go over one slide. This is D.W. Griffith. He is mainly a director. He is not an actor. He's known for being a director. He's known for being a very um, inventive director. Director. And in 1914, so a little bit before United Artists is made, and a little bit before uh, all these scandals come up with like Valentino and uh, Clara Bow and and before Fatty Arbuckle. So this is kind of one of those things where it's kind of a bit of a discussion about this. Uh, D.W. Griffith wants to make an epic. Um, D.W. Griffith, as we're about to find out, is a very controversial figure. Um, very flawed figure. I can't iterate that enough. There is problems with D.W. Griffith that I'm about to get into. That said, some of the stuff he does for film technology and the way f- films are made is due in large part to him. Uh, a lot of his film techniques. He's the first one to put a uh, camera on a moving truck, to have a moving shot. <coughs> uh, he's the first one to have cross cuts in editing. Does a lot of things with editing. Just a lot of really creative things where it comes to just how movies are made. But in 1914, so this movie is well over 100 years old now. Not well over, but a little over 100 years old now. He makes a movie that is to be like the great epic of all time. Uh, the great epic of all time. He wants to make something that's going to transcend just movies and show that cinema can be educational. It can be high art. And I use the term epic. Uh, I don't use the term epic lightly because epic is what this really is. Now, D.W. Griffith, his real name is David Wark Griffith, but just call him D.W. He's originally born in 1875 in Kentucky, and he's a son of a Confederate colonel known as Roaring J. Griffith. Now, I, I can't iterate this enough. This is after the Civil War is over. And likewise, his dad dies when he's only 10, uh, when D.W. is 10. Uh, his dad was not 10 when he died, clearly. Sorry, his dad was not 10 years old when his dad died, but when D.W. died. Uh, there is a natural idolization of a, of a parent like that. Likewise, there's things going on in the world at large uh, within the United States of lionizing, idolizing, uh, the lost cause, the idea that the Confederates were a very romanticized death and part of it. Uh, like I said, he moves to Hollywood early on, gets some early work as an actor before starting to direct. Uh, his first real directing role is with Pancho Villa, like the Pancho Villa, like the one in Mexico. Like, Pancho Villa did movies for a while. Weird story. So anyway, in 1915, he wants to make a new movie, uh, an epic. And I can't narrate this stuff. Movies are getting a little bit longer this time period, but they're still fairly short, maybe 30 minutes at the most. Um, this is going to be a three-hour movie, a three-hour movie when most were like 15 minutes. Um, he's a, he wants to use all sorts of new movie-to-making techniques, like the close-up, fade-out, cross-edits, color filming. Uh, he stages battles with hundreds of extras. And it's, it's going to be a story of the Civil War. It's a story of the Civil War and Reconstruction. 
he wants to glorify people like his father, so it's going to be glorifying the South in a little bit. Uh, use some of the most of the most historically accurate modern scholarship available. Very flawed scholarship, I will say. Uh, even uses the work of President Woodrow Wilson, who got a PhD in political science and actually taught history for a while and uh, has some Southern sympathies. Furthermore, um, Griffith wants to have a lot of authenticity in this movie. He is going to, you know, hire Civil War soldiers to act as extras. Uh, he's going to stage the battles, just like the actual photographs. You might see the famous photographs of Civil War battle fight sites. Uh, Griffith is doing the same thing. He's going to make sure it looks exactly the same. Make it authenticity. Now, if you go over one slide, you will see why this film is problematic. It's called Birth of a Nation. And if you don't recognize the folks in white on top of a horse, that's the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan, historically speaking, had gone away by this time period. Um, by the 1870s, definitely by the 1880s, uh, the Klan was no more. There was no more Klan. Uh, still, he wants to idolize them. Also, a couple other notes about production. Uh, most of the main roles for black characters, there are black characters in the film, uh, they are played by white actors in blackface. That's problematic. However, the uh, like the there are some like minor roles for for black people which are played by black people. But for instance, the villain of the movie, Silas Lynch, uh, is supposedly a mulatto. He's clearly a white guy in blackface. Also, this is meant to be pure history. Uh, he adapts a screenplay of a novel entitled The Klansman by Thomas Dixon. You can see on the poster that that's what it's called. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Now, in spite of its problematic elements, it is very successful. Like, super successful. Uh, it does cost a fortune to make. It costs about $100,000 in 1915 money. Uh, so, like, $2.4 million in current money, which is considerable considering the time period of the budget. I know $2.4 million for a movie doesn't sound like too much. For the time period, it's a ton. But, uh, good God, they made that budget stretch. Uh, what is interesting is that um, this film could not be presented in regular movie theaters at first. Um, and it needed special cameras to have the reels, because remember, most of these movies beforehand are like 15 minutes or so. This is a three-hour movie. It goes around in a roadshow format. Basically, uh, the crew has to come in with a special camera to present this film. And as such, it cost a lot more to go to this cost us a lot more to go to this. Uh, in 1915, when this came out, the average price of a movie ticket was about 15 to 10 cents. 10 to 15 cents. Um, Birth of a Nation to see cost $2.20. It was usually about a two-hour movie. In modern-day money, it would be like paying $50 to see a movie. Um, there's really no way of knowing exactly how much money it made because of the format. Also, box office receipts aren't kept as well as they do now. But conservatively, conservatively, it made about $50 million in 1915 money, which is about $1.2 in today money. Um, it's up there for the most, the movie that made the most money adjusted for inflation. Uh, Gone with the Wind is probably the highest adjusted for inflation. But when it comes to this movie, it is the highest. Uh, now, there is also a load of controversy. Uh, in particular, if you go over one slide, you will see the NAACP, which is a new organization in this time period. 
The NAACP had only been around since 1909, and so only six years afterwards, um, the NAACP calls for a national boycott of the film. Um, it held the film as racist and inaccurate. And they're right. This is a racist movie, and it's an accurate movie. But it claims to be, you know, historical. It even includes a quote from Woodrow Wilson from his book about Reconstruction. Not only that, whenever Woodrow Wilson has its screen at the, at the White House, he claims, quote, it's like history writ with lightning. It's like, it's just like the most accurate thing ever done. Now, these boycotts play a really big role in turning the NWCP into a real organization. And another organization that comes back to this film, go over one slide, is the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, believe it or not, the Ku Klux Klan comes back in power because of the reception of this film. Uh, the, the Klan is the heroes of the movie. There are no two ways about it. If you watch the film, which I'm going to have a link to it, I, I'm not going to recommend you watch all of it because it's a three-hour movie that's really effing racist and also kind of boring, but mainly really racist. Uh, it's super racist, and it's also really long. And I don't want you to spend three hours watching a long-ass racist movie, but the Klan is the heroes. At the end of the movie, the Klan literally ride it on horseback to save everybody from the evil black people who are going to try to kill them. And at the end, the end-to-end -end of the movie, it shows Jesus in heaven with a bunch of white people, and then the devil in hell with a bunch of black people. Uh, it's a racist-ass movie. I cannot iterate that enough. It's so effing racist. But still, seeing the Klan like this, and also like the way that the Klan did itself, you know, the idea of the Klan and the white sheets and the hoods. Uh, regular Klan back then didn't have the all-white thing. Same thing with the Burning Cross. Uh, the original Ku Klux Klan does not have the Burning Cross. Kind of an invention for the movie that the Klan actually adapts, because in 1915, Walter Simmons, who's a former member of the old Klan, he was very young in the old Klan, you know, about a good 30, 40 years after the original Klan was in power, goes to Stone Mountain, Georgia. Uh, that's still there. It's Stone Mountain, Georgia. It's right outside Atlanta. Uh, I think it's the largest granite rock in North America. And burns a cross saying pretty much, hey, the Ku Klux Klan is back. And we're going to be a new Klan. We don't just hate black people. We hate immigrants. We hate Jews. We hate immigrants. Did I mention immigrants? We hate Jews. Did I mention Jews? Did I mention immigrants? We're the defenders of womanhood. Uh, this is the clan we have nowadays. Uh, believe it or not, the Ku Klux Klan was like dead dead for about 30, 40 years. It's only after this movie that the clan comes back. Not only that, it's the reason that the clan, because the clan is refounded here, is the reason why they carved the faces on Stone Mountain, Georgia. Um, you know, the, the, the relief of Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and Jefferson Davis on the, the side of Stonewall Mountain in Georgia, that wasn't already there. Um, even whenever the Klan put up their cross to redo the Klan, uh, that's actually made later in the 60s. So you should, you could argue that the reason that monument is at Stone Mountain is because it's so tied with the Ku Klux Klan. So ironically, this film is responsible for both the Klan and the NAACP. Now, to be fair, uh, he is stunned by the backlash. Griffith is stunned by the backlash and the accusations of racism. Uh, since he naively believed that this was historically accurate and therefore above reproach, likewise, because he grew up in Kentucky and got really engrossed in lost cause mentality, he's like, no, this is what it was like. This is what I was told the Civil War was like. Uh, he does try to make up with later films like Intolerance. None of his later films are anywhere near as big as this. Uh, still, a couple years later, 
his profile is big enough to um, make United Artists with Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin, and Douglas Fairbanks. And he's still hailed within the industry for his technical prowess. I mean, nobody is going to say that, hey, you know, D.W. Griffith was a good person or like a, a racially sensitive person or he made things that weren't racist ass racist. But a lot of the techniques he does are pretty novel for the film industry. Um, it, this is still hailed as a very important movie. I, I do talk about this film in most of my classes, not because I like it, but because it's very important. And its subject matter, particularly its tone, are very problematic. Um, I think Roger Ebert probably described it best as a great film that argues for evil. Like, great in the sense of, like, it's a well-made film, it's an important film, but it's not a good film, if that makes any sense. And that's where we're going to kind of end today. You know, movies start spreading more and more. There's more discussion about, you know, are films good or are films bad? Um, you know, what about the lives of these people? Is that something worth talking about? Is that something we should keep in mind? Would somebody think of the children? And that is where it kind of expands for a while. Now, next week, we're going to talk about what happens whenever the entertainment starts coming into your home. We're going to talk about what is it, you know, it's one thing to go out and go to a film. It's another thing entirely to have it come in to your house. And it's not film. It's another form of entertainment coming into your house. And that would be the radio. And not only that, recorded music. Now it's coming within the house. Now it's coming into your internal being. Now it's saying maybe you can have a little bit of privacy about what you do. But we're going to wait on that until next week, so discussion leaders, do your thing.